0: Hey there. Hello. All right. I'm the teacher today.
1: All right. Yeah, we're we're still lobbying for this to be become a thing. Uh, <laughs> we want there to be one day in the year where the students teach the teachers.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if you noticed. I rearranged our schedule so I don't have to do it two times in a row. So yeah. <laughs> it's too much work. I don't know how you do it every week.
1: Uh, Well cutting corners that's a big a big thing you've (laughs) got to you've got to learn how to do teaching on a podcast or teaching in real life (laughs) (laughs) figuring out what do you really need to do and what do you not really need to do you know
0: that's kind of good advice for basically all jobs
1: yeah there's a lot of bullshit out there that people tell you like you really really have to do this but you don't but there's also there's also a pretty interesting middle ground of like Stuff that sounds like it's bullshit, but then they get really mad at you if you don't do it.
0: So. Oh, yeah, for sure. you have to like check boxes, but yeah, don't kill yourself over them.
1: Like compliance training, anything called compliance uh, training you like have to do even though everyone knows it's bullshit.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I still have to do some this year.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know that I just realized that was still on my plate as well, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm cutting it close this year.
1: Yeah, but there's other things that sound super important that are just not.:
0: <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure
1: figure out what that is kids listening to this just enjoy your days that you don't have that
0: exactly we were talking before how i'm basically i take a nap almost every day so i'm living that kindergarten lifestyle
1: (laughs) yeah that's uh fantastic
0: it's good i recommend it
1: (laughs) all right well take us away
0: okay today we're going to talk about a guy named william morris this guy did a ton of things. He is probably foremost known for being a British designer of textiles and wallpapers and various like decorative arts. But he also did poetry, he like painted, he was a novelist, he got into weaving, (laughs) he established several printing presses, he was a preservation advocate for like historic buildings. Probably the weirdest one, in my opinion, he was a translator of Icelandic sagas and poetry.
1: Whoa, okay.
0: <laughs> he got very into Iceland. The reason we're going to talk about him today, though, is that he was also a socialist activist.
1: Ah, that's the best part of it. That's the I'm good I'm sure stuff. the other part were cool, too. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> So he's most known for being part of the British Arts and Crafts Movement, which we will talk about in a moment. And that was originally going to be the focus of this episode.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This was a mid-19th century turn to focus on decorative and fine arts. And it was really a reactionary movement to respond to increased industrialization.
1: Okay. So when you say reaction, you don't mean like right-wing reactionary. No, no, no. You mean like it was a reaction against? They were like, ew, industrialization, arts and crafts movement.
0: So basically at the time you had this huge shift in work practices, you know, the industrial age. People are moving from the country to the cities. You have a huge rise in pollution and like terrible working conditions. You also have a decrease in standards. People are mass producing things for the first time and it has some bad results. The arts and crafts movement was more concerned with like this stuff is shitty and cheap and ugly, but you also have things like, you know, people mixing chalk into flour and like, you know, dangerous stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's like what, Kropotkin was talking about, you know, labeling terrible, labeling things that are terrible for you as good for you and stuff like that.
0: Exactly. So you just have overall decreased standards and, to me this whole movement reminded me a lot of other movements we've seen like the luddites or the diggers where there's kind of this glorification of the past and this rejection of technology that on the surface can seem like oh you just like don't like technology you're stupid <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it actually has like deeper like socioeconomic roots
1: okay so it's a more it's a it's kind of a human rebellion at what we're being put into like uh it's not fair that the world is, you know, like this and we have to you know, wear shitty ugly clothes that are mass produced and fall apart real quick or, you know, we have to eat these these toxic foods or what have you like we could have a better world.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll talk more about how like Morris in particular sees this shift. And so yeah, originally it was going to be about the whole like movement. But then I found out Morris was actually deeply involved in British socialism, you know, in in it's kind of early era. And I think his journey is a really interesting microcosm. And we'll kind of talk about why. All right. Cool. All right, let's get into a bio. Just gonna hit the highlights here. Because honestly, a lot of his bio was like, and then he built a cool new house. And here's who worked on it. And like,
1: Okay, (laughs) yeah,
0: I don't care a lot of houses a lot of schools all that stuff, but highlights start off He was born in Essex March 24th 1834 So he comes from a very wealthy background his father was a financier and his mother was from like a wealthy kind of upper middle-class family And he was the third of six surviving children and his upbringing was like very like bourgeois. Like, yeah, <laughs> was...
1: I was gonna say if he's talking, if there's frequently parts of his biography where he's building houses like for himself <laughs> to live in, then that's that's pretty up there.
0: Yeah, for sure. He was like, you know, fishing in the countryside, reading, riding ponies, going to boarding school. Like, he was a fancy oh, little ass, <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah. So very Downton Abbey.
0: Very much so. <laughs> So he eventually goes to Marlboro College. Uh, he gets a nickname and it's Crab, and that's the best thing I've ever heard.
1: They called him Crab?
0: They called him Crab.
1: What was, do, do you know why they called him Crab, or is that just unknown?
0: All it said was that he was eccentric, and so I'm just like picturing him like crab walking everywhere or something.
1: Oh, that's how crazy crab it is, you know?
0: <laughs> He's always like snippy with people, maybe. I don't know.
1: Oh, like crabby, yeah. Could be crabby. Mm.
0: Anyway, <laughs> this is where we see the first of his many interests in the past pop up, and he gets into something called Anglo-Catholicism.
1: Uh, is that like white people Catholicism? I thought. <laughs>
0: no, Or like so,
1: English Catholic? Like, you know, Anglo-English, I guess.
0: Yeah, so it's Anglican Catholicism, which mm. is like an oxymoron. It sounds like.
1: Well, Anglicanism is, like, the closest to Catholicism. This is a, theologically suspect. But uh, <laughs> the closest to Catholicism, I want to say, of, like, the Protestant. You know, it's very Catholic.
0: Exactly. So, But this movement was, like, trying to make it even more Catholic.
1: <laughs> mm, okay.
0: Like, they saw the current church is too loose and they needed more doctrine. So they got super into, like, the Pope and, like, sacraments and saints and – You know, just kind of a more ritual heavy mass.
1: Yeah. All right. I could see that.
0: I mostly bring this up because I think it starts his fascination with the past and a return to the past.
1: Mm, Okay. And he kind of does that. But in later on, we're talking about the industrial stuff. He does it against that, too. Like
0: Mm -hmm. he does it a lot. He he plays around with a lot of different movements.
1: (laughs) So he likes I mean, one of the common threads then we're going to see is he likes the he wants sort of a return to the past.
0: Yes and no. Okay. All right. <laughs> I think he uses it as an example.
1: Mm. All right.
0: So, yeah, Anglo-Catholicism, he gets into it for a while. He even briefly considers joining the clergy, and then he ends up becoming more critical of the church and eventually even becoming an atheist. So, like, yeah, this this doesn't last super long. All right. But then he goes to Oxford, where he gets into even more different ideas so we're going to go over some intellectual movements fairly quickly here because i think they help paint a picture of his interests uh, particularly again as it has to do with the past okay so the first up is romanticism what do you know about this movement
1: romanticism that's when you're like you know that's the option <laughs> where you're you're playing uh, Sims, and you do the romantic options, and you're, like, flirting or whatever. <laughs> you try right? to
0: smooch everybody?
1: Yeah, it's romantic. No. Uh, <laughs> romanticism, I don't know. I know it's like, a, a, there's a musical mm-hmm. side to it, so, like, I want to say Beethoven? That's classical. Maybe. But Damn he it. was
0: very late classical, and you could consider some of his later works romantic in, in era.
1: Okay. Well, that was close, but I would, but no I would so consider no. some okay. of the
0: sonatas romantic.
1: Alright. I want to say it's just, like, more emotional or less about depicting something mm, objectively and more like evoking emotions but i don't know if that's just because of the word romantic
0: i mean you basically got it
1: okay cool
0: (laughs) so this was kind of a reactionary movement to the enlightenment where we were all about logic and reason and science and the romanticists were like guys what about feelings Mm, okay (laughs) So, yeah, this is where you get th- uh, romantic music like Chopin and Schumann. Uh, I think Litz. I don't know how to say his name. Lists? Do you just say it like Liszt?
1: Maybe. Lists. <laughs> I, don't I don't know.
0: You know the one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's in music. It's in art. And in art, they're really focused on, you know, kind of glorifying the past, especially medieval past. And nature, too. They're very into nature this is also where you get the horror genre um frankenstein is one of the most famous romantic
1: works ah nice
0: yeah and and you can see that it's it's a very symbolic story it's about hubris and science and religion like it's a it's very it tackles big themes you know
1: okay is that related to like gothic art
0: yes very much so okay speaking of gothic the next thing he got really into was medievalism which is kind of just what it sounds like you're interested in medieval shit
1: okay all right
0: <laughs> and this shows up in architecture you have a lot of neo-gothic architecture so think churches with very pointy spires stuff mm. like that
1: <laughs> okay is that is notre dame cathedral an example of that or is it just mm. a like also pointy <laughs>
0: I don't know let me find out I don't know how old it is French Gothic it might have been regular Gothic and not neo-gothic
1: though oh probably so because it was very old but
0: yeah 1163 was when they made construction on that so okay I think so they it was were regular original Gothic, gothic. <laughs> yeah, OG gothic
1: <laughs> but they were looking at that uh, and saying damn wasn't that cool we should let's do more yeah let's let's borrow from that okay
0: so yeah so Morris was interested in both like the kind of chivalric values of medieval times, but he was also really interested in the idea of a pre-capitalist society like mm, the Middle okay. Ages.
1: All right, I can dig that uh, the 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 downside I would say though, is that like I mean it wasn't great to be living in medieval <laughs> it society.
0: Wasn't. It was not, but I, it reminded me of other comparisons we've read to like medieval times and serf times. I think Kropotkin, the introduction to his book, I guess it was the foreword, had that kind of thing, too, saying, oh, we used to be more communal and stuff like that. Marriage of History also talks about that as well. Like, there's lots of texts that reference the Middle Ages as a, yeah, while not actually materially better, there are some things about it that were better.
1: There are some things that we could bring back that would be cool. I think David Graeber talks about that in Bullshit Jobs is... The, that the peasants you know it's not just completely hundred percent life a drudgery like you have a lot of mm-hmm. time off to yourself and like the hours of your day aren't strictly measured and sold to somebody, <laughs> you know
0: yeah, yeah like there's that stat that like medieval peasants had more time off than like modern Americans mm-hmm. <laughs> just just really fucked up. Of course that work is like seasonal and really hard, I'm sure but like yes. it's it's just pointing out like hey, Progress in the name of progress isn't always good.
1: Right, yeah. And whatever is called progress for everyone or whatever isn't 100% for everyone, and it does have, like, its own downsides, too. Yes. Okay.
0: This dissatisfaction with capitalism led him to Christian socialism. So he was still mm. kind of into Christianity at this point. And he starts reading works by Charles Kingsley and Frederick Denison Maurice,
1: All right. I don't really know about these guys yet. I'm only just starting my research into that direction. Uh, could, Could you tell me anything about them, though?
0: Yeah, I just have a few points on them. So Maurice is kind of considered the founder of the Christian socialist movement in Britain. And he has this quote that I think is interesting. I want to hear what you think about it. All right. He says, quote, Christianity is the only foundation of socialism and that a true socialism is the necessary result of a sound Christianity.
1: Interesting. So he's saying basically if you, I don't know, one, one direction seems to be saying socialism has to be Christian, but I like the other direction of if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to be a socialist.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't I don't know if I totally buy the other one. I, maybe right. in his yeah. his time and place that makes more sense because, yeah, you're in Victorian England. Like, that's probably fair. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i will point out like as much as that isn't my jam in particular like personally both these guys kingsley and maurice did a lot of labor organizing and they would establish co-ops so like you know they're a walk in the walk
1: okay yeah they were just saying things
0: they weren't just writing things and trying to make themselves look cool
1: right yeah what if we did this yeah. <laughs> they weren't just talking to the void on a podcast <laughs>
0: yeah who would do that hmm <laughs> Okay, next, I've titled this section, Morris Meets His Bros. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I don't think you can talk about Morris's biography without mentioning some of his besties, because they really influence him. The first of which is Edward Byrne Jones, who is pretty much his lifelong best friend and collaborator. They just go everywhere together. All those houses he built, like, a friend or two will be living with him, like, all the time. Like, he's just, he's a bro guy. Yeah.
1: Was he married also, or was it like confirmed bachelor? Okay.
0: <laughs> he was married, although there are also some issues with that, which we'll talk about in a second. All right. <laughs> he ends up going to Pembroke College, where he meets even more bros, and they become known as the Birmingham Set, which just kind of picture the dead poet society. They're just big nerds.
1: Oh, man, this sounded kind of cool. Birmingham Set? <laughs> like, that's a cool... <laughs> makes you sound stylish i'm thinking of the jet set i guess but
0: oh okay okay
1: it sounds like a stylish term (laughs) with a birmingham set
0: they they read poetry and shakespeare and yeah they're just nerds (laughs) (laughs) and one of the things they were into something called the pre-raphaelite brotherhood you you know this is just another flavor of medievalism we don't super have to get into it there's some cool paintings from that if you want to look into it i'll Mm -hmm. send you my notes i've got links to everything Um, if you know the painting Ophelia, you know, the lady, the dead lady in the water with like the flowers everywhere. I know about
1: Ophelia from like Hamlet.
0: It's that, but it's a painting of it.
1: A painting of Ophelia. Okay. It's a
0: pretty famous painting. I bet you'd know it. It's an animal crossing. That's how I know all my famous paintings.
1: Oh, I've seen that. Okay.
0: So yeah, basically it's, it's another form of that, you know, looking at the past, getting really into it. Another influence at this time was the writer, John Ruskin. He writes a lot about rejecting industrial manufacturing. And this is when Morris gets really into that idea. He advocates for a return to decorative arts, handcrafted work, and lifting up artisans to the level of art and that art should be like available and affordable for everybody.
1: I guess Morris started saying this once he heard it from Ruskin. Yes. Uh, That what we shouldn't manufacture as many things we should craft them artisan style
0: yes and no (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, i think in this interpretation i'm not sure if like ruskin had a specifically different idea i think morris kind of synthesizes it as let's mass produce what we need to but like let's also reserve some work for artisans the idea of machines should actually be saving you labor and not increasing labor
1: yeah I can dig that. Like that's um that's a big strand of the early socialist movement and everything. I mean, going back for so in so long you can see from very early on people demanding like fewer hours. I mean, the, at first that was 8, but I mean, people were legit saying let's do a 4-hour day, a 4-day week like way back when, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of where all these ideas lead to is that Sure, let's be productive so we can provide for people to have more time for the arts.
1: Mm -hmm. And I guess it takes, (laughs) this is where kind of your bourgeois intellectuals who are class (laughs) traders kind of come in is they actually have the time and the experience to be like, (laughs) hey, like I get to do this and it's nice. I want everyone else to be able to.
0: Yeah, I want everyone to have the kindergarten lifestyle of taking a nap in the middle of the day and making art. <laughs> it's great, guys.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and I don't know. I guess that I'm just sort of ad hoc tying this into various things. But it just kind of makes me think of, like, the importance of a revolutionary party of people who can, like, dedicate time. Because so many people don't have time for this bullshit, you know? They mm-hmm. don't have time to, like figure out their conditions besides just experiencing them brutally you know they don't have time to like figure out okay well how could i break free of this they're just like trying to survive day to day you know
0: yeah yeah and i i think uh, yeah i don't know if it's fair to expect someone who is i don't know i i'm of two minds of it of like one they actually know what it's like to experience that suffering in a way that like we don't true but yeah i think you're right that it might be helpful to have someone who is like sat around and thought about this, but I don't know, I think it's a combination.
1: Yes, for sure. You can't can't have one or the other. You gotta have them you have to gotta be among the masses, as just saying. Yeah. You gotta <laughs>
0: listen to those people. At this point, Morris fully commits to life as an artist. His family does not react well to this. They're like, hey, you were supposed to be like a businessman like your father, or join the clergy, and you just like didn't do that. <laughs> so <laughs>
1: Instead, you're sitting around here talking about old art and old architecture (laughs) or whatever.
0: I mean, yeah. And he dives right the fuck in. I thought this guy was a Gemini for a second because of how many fucking hobbies he has. No, he is an Aries. But he starts up as an apprentice to a (laughs) neo-Gothic architect, but then quickly switches to painting, furniture design, illuminated manuscripts, poetry, and tapestries.
1: Wow. All right. So he dabbles.
0: He dabbles for sure.
1: You know, maybe he was a mistyped Aries or like an accidentary. I know, as a fellow non Aries <laughs> Aries, I know it's like not like the Myers-Briggs and I can't mistype someone. It's just a day on the calendar, but still.
0: <laughs> no, it is Aries. Yeah, maybe he had a weird rising sign or something. I didn't do a full <laughs> horoscope for him. All right. I failed at my one job. At this point, he meets his wife, Jane Burden, who is a working class lady he meets at the theater they have a complicated relationship she ends up having an affair with his friend who is a painter Dante Rossetti Um, she like does modeling for him and it just kind of escalates from there Ah, Um, awkward yeah it's kind of unclear if this is just a marriage of convenience or what because like sources were saying like oh she might not have like ever loved him and just like got married and that he might have known about the affair and other affairs later so like I don't know
1: (laughs) People are messy sometimes.
0: <laughs> it's not my business. <laughs> they end up having two kids though, two daughters, Jane and Mary. Now let's let's get back to what we're talking about though, the Arts and Crafts movement. Okay. So in 1861, he founds a company called Morris and Co. Originally, it's like Morris and a bunch of names, but like the transfer of power shifts, so eventually it's just Morris and Co. Um,
1: he takes over.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he like <laughs> brings on a business manager or something.
1: Weird socialist.
0: I know this is where things get messy. <laughs> All right. Yes. So this is considered like the seminal concept of the arts and crafts movement. like this is what it is is Morris and Co. So I'm gonna go through some of their like tenets and you're gonna tell me if any of these sound familiar. okay So one, ornament should be secondary to the thing that is being decorated. Utility over ornamentation and basically an awareness of the materials used. Advocating for a simple flatness in design as opposed to 3D realism. So at the time it was very popular to have, you know, super realistic looking natural motifs. So, you know, think like a floral wallpaper that looks like it's like coming out of the fucking walls. The l'oeil effect, you know, like the fool the eye.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, But they're like, no, not everything has to be like 3D. Like, I think it's cooler if it's flat and graphic and stuff like that. Okay. All right. So did any of those things kind of trigger any art history memories for you?
1: Art history memories. (laughs) I don't have a lot of them. So I'll go with what I got on the show. Uh, Is that similar to kind of the minimalism of the Russian constructivists? Ding, ding, ding. Nice. Nice. (laughs)
0: yeah i mean that idea of being aware of what your materials you're using Mm -hmm. you know utility stuff like that i I think this is why the arts and crafts movement is hammered so heavily in like design history courses because it does end up influencing art nouveau which comes shortly after this russian constructivism and the bauhaus movement
1: all right so it's like right before a big explosion in in style
0: Mm -hmm. cool another tenet would be they were kind of anti-elitist. They are pro-artisan and pro-affordability, which ends up being kind of ironic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was already ironic because they're not, I mean, they're kind of elites.
0: They are. They absolutely are. And they end up getting commissions for very rich people. They end up working on St. James's Palace and Eaton Hall.
1: <laughs> Whoa, okay, yeah. Right up there in the the pinnacle of... The diseased heap.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Morris definitely struggled with this kind of contradiction between, you know, working class ideals and who he's actually serving. And I think he's an interesting figure because he's not like a pure class trader, but I think he tries and mm-hmm. we'll kind of see how he channels some of that money and energy later.
1: Okay. I was kind of curious, What is the? what do they mean by affordability? Like just sell it for cheap?
0: They think that everyone should have nice things. A quote from Morris, have nothing in your houses that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful.
1: Hmm.
0: He's like the original Marie Kondo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Does it bring you joy? <laughs>
0: yeah. They think that everyone should have access to this. Like They think that's that's what makes you human is your ability to appreciate and have nice things like art and stuff like that.
1: Okay. All right. I guess I hold that belief. I'm ju- I'm just I want him to get more into. Okay, well, how do I get from point A to point B, right? Like, so how do I get those in the hands of people?
0: <laughs> it takes him a while. He he has to he has to get there. All right. <laughs> and one of the ways he gets there is so he has got this company and they produce all kinds of stuff. They're doing, you know, metalwork, stained glass. That that's a very famous pr- production of theirs is lots of beautiful stained glass work wallpapers they're very famous for and instead of just imitating medieval art which is kind of what those other movements were doing they actually tried to use like medieval crafting methods so they'd be like yeah sure let's like figure out how they did it back in the day and try to do it here Mm. i think that leads to his next interest which is as he gets more interested in textile work he wants to return to a more natural dyeing process he wants to go to like using indigo again and like walnut shells and beetles and like all the things he used for natural dyes
1: yeah okay
0: so he gets into natural dyes and so he gets more involved in the production of it and so he goes to like textile factories and i think this is when his brain kind of like makes a connection because he sees the terrible working conditions and mm. he's like oh this sucks
1: <laughs> yeah
0: he also brings up pollution, and he's considered like one of the first eco-socialists, um, at least in you know recorded history, mm-hmm. and a forerunner to like modern environmentalism.
1: Whoa, okay, so he kind of gets his brain fried a little bit there, and <laughs> you're like, whoa, radicalized.
0: Yeah, I, I really think that's that's what led him to it. He, he writes a lot about how our land is divided up into either horribly polluted and overcrowded city slums or neatly preserved like game preserves for the rich.
1: And from your description earlier, like that's all he had only had experience with that one (laughs) half, right?
0: Yeah. When he moved to London, he was freaked the fuck out. He was like, excuse me, this is gross.
1: (laughs) He's like going from it's like uh, he's living on Naboo in the like (laughs) fancy, you know, imperial mm-hmm. gardens or whatever. And then he moves to the slums of Coruscant.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to like Tatooine. He's like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I-, I think it's nice because he-, he really believes that everyone should have access to nature, which to me reminds me of the, like the romanticist movement, but also of, you know, environmentalism.
1: Yeah. I like that.
0: It's time for a very quick art break. I don't include a ton of art in this one because it's more about the socialism first image we got here is a wallpaper from 1870. I included it because I think it shows kind of the design sensibility of this era. It's very flat. It's Mm -hmm. very graphic. It also shows his interest in Islamic art, I think, because of how intricate the patterns are.
1: Well, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this, I mean, is a huge turn from what they were doing before this. So
1: yeah i can see what you're saying like it's not trying to do any sort of 3d effect or anything it's it's like a better version of you know those old medieval you know any of those old drawings where everyone's like messed up in perspective and stuff (laughs) they're just yeah yeah so i don't know that's what it makes me think of it's cool
0: totally speaking of medieval the next piece i have is a like upholstery kind of fabric it's called peacock and dragon and this is like hella medieval
1: Man, those peacocks are badass.
0: They almost look like the dragons. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I included this just because it super shows that kind of medieval interest
1: of his. It is woven wool? It is. Oh man. So okay. Furnishing fabric would mean like you're putting it on like a chair or like furniture. I think so yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. That would be cool. That looks cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would definitely have a couch like that. That'd be fucking sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, quick art break, back to socialism. Hell yeah. All right, so my man dabbled. As he dabbles with everything, he dabbles with politics, too. After his textile factory journey, he's like, okay, I want to get more involved. And, you know, like all of us, he tries out liberalism for a while.
1: Mm. Well, (laughs) yeah, you got to start somewhere.
0: You do, you do. Anyway, so... (laughs) He joins a bunch of different movements, and it's really funny to read the history because it's like he joins this movement, and then he gets tired of it. He joins this movement, and then he gets tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> so a quick rundown. He tries to join the radical liberals um, in something called the Eastern Question Association. Basically, they like didn't want England to make an alliance with the Ottoman Empire because they thought it would lead to war. He was like, "All right, that was fine, but like still not far enough." so he joins the National Liberal League and then he joins <laughs> the radical union um he just he he does some speed dating,
1: okay, and, but he's he's going in the right direction at least right he's starting out yeah, yeah, moderate liberal too more and more as as radical as he can get with them. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And this is why I think he's kind of an interesting guy to look at. There's this quote he has, which is he once believed that, quote, one might further realize socialistic progress by doing what one could on the lines of ordinary middle class radicalism. (laughs) But then he realizes that, quote, radicalism is on the wrong line, so to say, and will never develop into anything more than radicalism in fact, that it is made for and by the middle classes and will always be under the control of rich capitalists.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's why, you know, whether you elect Democrats or whether you elect Republicans, uh, they're both sort of working for the interests of capital. You know, they'll make changes around the edges and oftentimes meaningful changes, you know, depending on where you are in society, but... They're not going to overturn the system. They are the <laughs> Definitely system. Definitely
0: not. <laughs> yes. That's, they all have the same boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eventually, he gets his shit together and joins the Democratic Federation, which was Britain's first socialist party founded in 1891 by Henry Hindman.
1: All right. Henry Hindman. He's got a really cool beard. I'll give him that. That's oh, impressive. He does.
0: <laughs> You've brought it up a few times now. Morris, like, owns a business. He's, like, a rich guy. What mm-hmm. is he doing?
1: <laughs> well, Engels owned a factory, you know, and helped his father, I guess, manage a fa- he was He was, like, employed by his dad managing that factory or whatever. What was it? Who was the other guy? Robert Owen.
0: Mm, yeah, he owned was a factory factories. guy.
1: Yeah, you know, but he was, like, trying to be good or whatever. Is that what Morris is doing?
0: That's exactly what Morris is doing. He actually owns, ends up owning a factory, too, called the Merton Abbey Works they wove silk, dyed textiles, produced stained glass, and employed about a hundred craftspeople. And it's a mixed bag. Working conditions there were generally much better than most other factories. Mm-hmm. Um, they even had like a profit sharing program, but it was only for like the upper management, like the clerks, and like the actual craftspeople were paid in piecework. What I find troubling is that one of Morris's big complaints in his writings and in his speeches is that he feels that industry has led to atomization and alienation. You know, the idea of I'm just working on this one rinky dink part. I'm not, I don't feel connected to what I'm building. Like I don't get to be creative and that's kind of what ends up happening at his factory. Um, Everyone's executing his designs without any room for their own creative work.
1: Mm, Yeah. So even though they're artisans, they're kind of being reduced to here you go, like follow this blueprint, you know?
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So they're still being alienated in that, you know, in that classic Marxist way.
0: They are. I kind of give Morris props because he's kind of open about it. He's like, yeah, this kind of sucks. But like, you can't have a socialist company within capitalism. Mm-hmm. Which like part of me is like, is that just an excuse? Or like, I don't know. I I think he does some activities later that I think make up for it. But it's it's a little bit disappointing.
1: Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I'm kind of with him in terms of like, hey, you got to make a living and I'm going to try to make it like as as unshitty as possible for the workers, (laughs) you know, and as fair as possible as it can be. I mean, like if he is taking a lot of this money and putting it toward revolutionary causes, then I could excuse a lot of it because it's like, well, okay. I mean, what? (laughs) Unless you're going to go begging in the streets, which. I guess, you know, that's, you could. Um, what are you going to do, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And, you know, it, it's difficult because at the end of the day, like, a lot of his family money comes from, like, copper mines, you know? <laughs> and and he lives off of that for a very long time. But he does use it to fund some cool stuff, which we're going to see later. So it's like, yeah, you know, like, I don't want to fucking crucify him for being rich. But, like, I, I think he... I think he's doing his best, I guess, is
1: my summary. <laughs> I don't think there's a good way to be rich, to be bourgeois under capitalism. Like, there's mm-hmm. no good way to cut your path that's saintly in any way. You know, it's mm-hmm. all going to be tarnished. It's all going to have, yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's just all going to be exploitative and ex, yeah, exp, it's going to rely on exploitation in some way mm-hmm. or another. It's going to be unfair. That's the society that we're trying to fight, but the main point is using that to fight it. Yes. otherwise you're just being bourgeois like there's nothing cool about that that just sucks <laughs> yeah but if you're yeah. like being bourgeois and and taking what you're getting from that the ill those ill gotten gains and like channeling it into destroying that system then that's cool
0: yeah i i think he's trying to do that we'll we'll see how he does that okay all right so my dude gets into socialism he joins his club and he's like well i gotta do some homework time for some reading
1: Hell yeah. These were assigned readings. Like these were good clubs that were, you know, doing secret comic book clubs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're like, welcome. Here's your reading list. You can pick up your books in the back. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. First up, he reads something called Progress and Poverty by Henry George.
1: Henry George.
0: Have you heard of this guy?
1: He's a classic. Yeah, he's the Georgist guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he's like kind of foundational for like the progressive era in in this time period. I, I wanted to see what you think about some of his ideas, because, like, I got some of them and some of them went over my head. All right. Okay. This book, Progress and Poverty, is like a treatise on why poverty happens, basically exploring the boom and bust cycle of, like, okay, if we're advancing economically and technologically, why do we still have poor people? Yeah. And his theory is that as you increase public services, so as you get better at doing things like education and technology and just overall standard of living, you are thereby increasing the rent, um, which is just the value of the land. And then you have speculators who increase the price of land faster than you could actually produce wealth, which lowers wages and leads to like a bust, basically. Is that like how it works?
1: (laughs) Not really. Um, I mean, the, (laughs) the Marxist analysis of that is simply that with increases, like, so all the capitalists have to keep up with increases of technology, you know, or they get booted out of the market. Okay. They do that and they keep producing more and more and more. But since they're kind of all on level playing field, as far as the technology goes, you know, in aggregate, they're really the only way they can compete or that they have to compete because otherwise they get, again, Bankrupted, is uh by cutting wages, you know, by stealing more labor, and so that's why labor goes down, production goes up. Eventually, people can't buy the shit. As far as land speculation goes, I mean, he may have like a point specific to like real estate bubbles and stuff. There is a lot of also just like money laundering and stuff that goes on in real estate. (laughs) That's just like rich people trying to tax dodge and stuff. So I don't know specifically enough about it to say if he's you know one hundred percent right or wrong. He's probably not 100% right, but, but he could have something to say about that. I think the, the fundamental mechanic, though, is is different from a Marxist take um, in terms of booms and busts.
0: Okay, so maybe this is more specific to land. Because, yeah, I do think he kind of hyper focuses on it. I did like this quote, though, <laughs> where he says, Take now some hard-headed businessman who has no theories but knows how to make money. <laughs> say to him, here's a little village. In 10 years, it will be a great city. In 10 years, the railroad will have taken the place of the stagecoach, the electric light of the candle. It will abound with all the machinery and improvements that so enormously multiply the effective power of labor. Which reminds me of like Kropotkin's idea of like the city, like the location will improve on yes. its own. Like yeah. No one can own that. Back to the quote. Will in 10 years interest be any higher? He will tell you no. Will the wages of the common labor be any higher? He will tell you no. What then will be higher? rent the value of land go get yourself a piece of ground and hold possession and if under such circumstances you take his advice you need do nothing more you may sit down and smoke your pipe you may go up in a balloon or down a hole in the ground and without doing one stroke of work without adding one iota of wealth to the community in 10 years you will be rich in the new city you may have a luxurious mansion but among its public buildings will be an (laughs) almshouse.
1: nice (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I think it's a great point about just land ownership and sitting on land for prices. Like, I, I think he gets a little myopic about it. Like, his big solution is like, oh, let's just tax land. Like, yeah. get rid of all taxes except for basically land, which he defines as, like, natural materials and opportunities. So, I think it's just more like capital.
1: Uh, well, land, I think, to him is the primary capital. Or is is he also talking about, like, factories and stuff?
0: He says land is defined as, quote, all natural materials, forces, and opportunities freely supplied by nature.
1: Okay, so you could think, like, copper deposits or whatever, you know. Yeah, like mines and shit. And, yeah, and oil. and Okay.
0: Yeah, so his big idea was, like, okay, let's tax the fuck out of that. We don't have to do other taxes now, and we can still have enough to provide for better public services and, like, maybe a basic income. He also wants to force lander- owners to actually use the land instead of just sitting on it, which, like, is a big problem, particularly with things like monocultures and false scarcity. So he thinks this would solve a lot of public
1: ills. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, they're interesting ideas that help solve some <laughs> of the symptoms of capitalism.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's like, I think it could be an interesting middle measure.
1: Yeah, like reforms, you mean?
0: Yes, that's what I mean by that.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, sure. They (laughs) they would be alleviating in terms of getting a lot of money to like do good things for people. At the end of the day, I don't really buy the notion that I guess I'm not a reformist, you know. So I don't Mm -hmm. think that you can that you'll ever get a ruling class that will legislate itself out of power.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so either.
1: So, but you know, it'd be nice to like get some of those things to to. I mean. Because like in the same vein, as kind of like inheritance taxes and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. like, hell yeah, do that. You know,
0: yeah, <laughs> that sure. Will help in the meantime. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that's one of the things he reads. He also reads uh, Land Nationalization by Alfred Russell Wallace, which was criticizing the United Kingdom's free trade policies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he read Das Capital," and, <laughs> and this is one of my favorite quotes from Morris. I must confess that, whereas I fairly enjoyed the historical part of Capital, I suffered agonies of confusion of the brain over reading the pure economics of that great work. <laughs> Which, like, same. Yeah, that sounds like a
1: future quote from you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've not tried to read Capital, but geez, even just his other stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Capital's a kind of a beast. Um, yeah. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We've gotten a request for it. And I was like, God, that's a long book, dude.
1: Well, that would be very, you know, big impressions. And it'd be like a two-part thing. It wouldn't be a detailed reading, but we could talk about it. It's supposed to be good. I mean, but also it's supposed project. to be just like, yeah, it's supposed to be just like he describes here of very detailed.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So he's done his reading. He joins this new club, Democratic Federation, and he gets really involved. What's he do? He gets appointed as their treasurer because remember, he's rich. <laughs>
1: Fair enough, yeah.
0: He designs their membership card, but that looked cool. <laughs> and he helps write their manifesto, which is called Socialism Made Plain. Which like sounds that. like a cookbook.
1: Socialism Made Plain. What was that? That was um there's something by James Connolly. Socialism Made Easy. Was <laughs> that his. that
0: sounds like a cookbook. <laughs> 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 Microwave socialism. <laughs>
1: All right. So what was socialism made plain?
0: Uh, you want to hear their ideas?
1: Yeah. It, so my first impression is socialism as it is way too spicy. English people don't <laughs> like that. Uh, tone it down.
0: I mean, that's kind of fair on some of these things.
1: <laughs> that's not fair to English people. Y'all like spice just like anybody else, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> it's like curry spice, though.
1: Ah, oh, which is dope. They
0: can't so. do Mexican food there.
1: Ah, OK. All right.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. Kyle went to one, like, supposedly Mexican place in England, and their hot sauce was, like, Louisiana hot sauce.
1: Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we, I'm sure we mess up English cuisine. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so.
0: Anyway, back to this manifesto. They were into improved housing for workers, free compulsory education for all children, free school meals, Eight-hour workday, which at the time was a big deal. Yeah. Abolition of national debt. And then they they get a little more spicy here. Nationalize the land, banks, and railways. And organize agriculture and industry under state control and co-ops.
1: All right. So they kind of lure you in there at the beginning.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They're like, don't you want better housing? And then they're like, don't you want a revolution?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Although, to be fair socializing, you know, nationalizing land and banks and railways, like they do some of that. You know, they do have like national rail eventually. Yeah, that's true. At the time, I don't think it was the land part, probably a little out there for a lot of people. But <laughs> I don't think the overall proposal was to, you know, I guess we're, we're living in the dark timeline. So nowadays it's like, whoa, that's <laughs> who would propose that. But back then that wasn't so radical or it was radical, but it wasn't unheard of.
0: I mean, we don't even have a rail system, much less (laughs) a nationalized one. Yeah. (laughs) So, again, kind of going back to that class contradiction, some people in the Democratic Federation, or the DF, as I'll call it from now on, were kind of judgy, like, what's this rich guy doing here? He, like, (laughs) owns a factory, which, like, fair.
1: True. But
0: this is where he starts putting his money where his mouth is. He pays for their weekly newspaper, just, like, bankrolls it.
1: (laughs) Nice. That's a... A good choice for the treasurer then.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, please be our treasurer. Um, make sure you keep track of all the money you're spending.
1: <laughs> so it's like if you're playing Monopoly, but in whoever's the banker like has to put their own money into the <laughs> in, as the Monopoly money. You want to put the rich guy in there, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then make that rich guy give it to everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoever the weakest player is, he gives them money.
1: Yeah, reverse Monopoly.
0: I love it. <laughs> That game would take a long time, even longer, if you're playing Socialist Monopoly. <laughs> so he writes their paper, which was called Justice, and he contributed lots of articles, and he gives lots of lectures around ain't just England. He speaks at Oxford. He goes to Lancashire during the Great Cotton Strike in 1884 and talks to the strikers there. He marches in a London demonstration, which was commemorating the first anniversary of Marx's death and the 13th anniversary of the Paris Commune. And just really throws himself into this. He even ends up giving up on like a big translation work he was doing. Because he's like, I don't have time for this now. I'm I'm into socialism.
1: Cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Went for it. How old was he then? Do you know? I like to keep in mind, you know, how long do I have? How long can I keep putting stuff off before (laughs) I really need to jump into things?
0: He joins in 1881. And he was born in 1834. So he's like what in his 50s 47 47 okay not that old but
1: 47 i still got some time
0: <laughs> <laughs> to get radical
1: yeah well to, to do radical things i'm still in that uh, early yeah. you know going around to the forests and dabbling <laughs> in various things and and reading radical stuff Mhm. but i still got some time before i start printing radical newspapers and going <laughs> on strikes
0: I mean, he goes for it. And not all of his friends are into it. He has to break up with his lifelong bestie, Burn Jones, who is like conservative.
1: Burn Jones? What? Why are you conservative? Uh. I don't know. He's just into the art part of it.
0: Probably, yeah. Mm. And um a lot of his friends just like weren't into it. There're only a few of them that like would get involved. Yeah. So. Because this is a socialist club, we got to have two things, a name change and a split.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. I knew the split was coming, but yeah, the name changed. Fair enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. So they changed their name to the Social Democratic Federation or the SDF. Okay. And then around the same time, they start experiencing a schism.
1: Oof. Okay. What were they schisming about?
0: So the founder, Hindman, he wanted to be more parliamentarian.
1: He did. Okay. <laughs>
0: And others, like Morris, was like, uh, what the fuck? That's too lib. We're not, you know, electoralism doesn't get us anywhere.
1: Well, okay. Was he wanting to do so in a reformist way? Like, let's get into power and legislate our way to socialism gradually. Or was he doing, like, the like the DeLeon style of, like, well, we're going to get in there. You know, we're going to use it to kind of develop our capacity. And then eventually, if we do end up with enough people, like, that'll be our leadership organization. That party will be, like, you know... Mm -hmm. You know what I mean?
0: So he wanted a parliamentary path towards socialism, but he also was like kind of weirdly nationalist and like kind of for foreign intervention. So like, oh, I don't know. My gut says he just like was a little misguided.
1: Yeah, that kind of sucks. Um, (laughs) When was that happening? Like the renaming and the...
0: 1884.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. Don't do nationalism, y'all. Not not good if you're... uh, like an imperial country anyway if you i mean if you're fighting for nas- national liberation that's fine but but if you're in like the imperial countries don't do nationalism like
0: Mm-mm. not good nationalism not hot
1: yeah unless again unless national liberation do it that's fine yeah if you're like yeah Fight the colonizers but
0: yeah absolutely so yeah morris was like hey i'm like anti-imperialist this isn't for me <laughs> so he left along with some of his friends and he formed the socialist league
1: oh that's like a cooler name you know going from social democratic to just straight socialist
0: um for sure and he helps write this manifesto too to, and does the art for it which is in the
1: notes i sent you that's really cool all right tag yourself i'm the <laughs> i'm the guy holding up the sign that's a the torch that says organize
0: i'm definitely the educate angel
1: educate angel <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's me in the middle just being holy, telling people what to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: So, yeah, that's like their slogan. Agitate, educate, and organize.
1: It's great. I mean, yeah. we're
0: That sounds perfect.
1: <laughs> yep. We're, we're doing a couple of those.
0: <laughs> we're mostly doing the middle one, but that's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're agitating a little bit. Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, this was 1885. He co-writes the manifesto with Ernest Belfort Bax. Another member of this group is actually Eleanor Marx, the youngest daughter of old Carl.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And they're into some cool stuff. They're, they're fucking radical. They're for proletarian internationalism. They're against the idea of socialism in just one country. They're like, no, we got to be global about it. They use the term making socialists a lot, which is the idea of like, hey, we have to educate and then organize. Like, we have to teach people that this is good for them. Okay anti-electoralism they boycott elections they're just like fuck that we're not into it Mm -hmm. and they're pro-revolution
1: all right interesting so this is a lot more radical than what he was doing before
0: yeah he fucking gets on board
1: (laughs) interesting did it say any in any way how they were planning to make socialists or you know or whatever like what was what was the road to doing that
0: i think from morris's perspective i think he was more in the education camp Again, he gets super involved with the newspaper and giving speeches and things like that. But I believe they also participated in in some organized action.
1: Like labor unions and stuff?
0: Yeah, there's something called the Black Monday Riots in 1886, mm-hmm. which they they did, or they were a part of.
1: So they were getting involved, I guess, on the ground. And, I mean, newspapers at the time, We we look at it back now and it's like, okay, well, who's listening? But, I mean, that's one of the few forms of information dissemination and just entertainment anything you know like keeping up with things
0: morris got to meet some cool folks he got to meet angles and angles apparently was like yeah he's cool but like i don't think he actually has any practical skills for the revolution which like sick burn but fair <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean to be fair angles really was mostly financing and publishing stuff you know he wasn't
0: he wasn't jacked and like yeah <laughs> raising like, the flag.
1: He wasn't really, yeah, he wasn't <laughs> <Story> <laughs> on the barricades, buildings. you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he also got to meet Peter Kropotkin. Well, ah. and he becomes very influenced by him and you can absolutely see that in some of his later writings. People kind of describe his eventual view as Marxism with visionary libertarianism, which is kind of my jam.
1: It gets sorted to that AnCom corner.
0: Mhm all right so as part of the socialist league he does lots of touring and talking he visits dublin and supports irish nationalism nice he founds a branch of the league at his own house and just like lets them have meetings there you know he's got so many fucking houses not a big deal
1: right yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) i have this house
1: plus it's a fancy house so here you go
0: it's beautiful all my art friends worked on it and painted murals and made the furniture (laughs) which is true (laughs) wow Uh, He represents the league as a delegate to the International Socialist Working Men's Congress. And he was the English spokesman there, too, which is apparently where they they established the second international. Yes. Yeah. Morris was like very appalled by how messy the process was. And I was like, (laughs) bro, you've been like 10 clubs. How are you surprised at this point?
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, his clubs weren't that big. Right. Like this was, I guess, delegates from all over the world kind of remind, maybe reminded him why he was anti-parliamentarian is it gets to be a messy process
0: <laughs> yeah so the league eventually does face some opposition they get some police raids um, they get arrested sometimes so they end up joining back with the sdf the socialist democratic federation to form a defense club and once again morris is the treasurer of that
1: <laughs> see Engel says he doesn't have any skills but then my man's good with money
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for now, it's important. For now.
0: <laughs> Morris himself gets arrested a couple of times, once for fighting back against a police officer. And again, during those Black Monday riots, he was preaching socialism on the streets and gets arrested for that.
1: <laughs> Whoa, man, rude.
0: Yeah, he gets out of it because, again, he's
1: rich. <laughs> well, I mean, he he said he fought against a cop. They let him off on that, too.
0: Yeah, charges were dismissed. Yeah, hmm. I it must have been
1: really rich. Yeah. <laughs> don't you know who I am?
0: Yeah, exactly. I made that cool chair. <laughs> so once again, he is really involved with this organization's newspaper called The Commonwealth or Common I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It it looks like Commonwealth without the TH.
1: I've said that common wheel, but I don't know if that's right.
0: <laughs> I don't know. He has a ton of articles in there. If you go to the marxist.org archive, you can see all of his writings. But he is the editor, the financial backer, and uh, a contributor. So really involved. Nice.
1: Doing more educating work.
0: Yes. But, um, you know, it's about that time for another fracture.
1: <laughs> are, we, are we talking about, like, fracturing, refracturing from the SDF or, like, within the within, within this socialists. one within
0: the socialist league
1: oh okay
0: yeah you get a bunch of anarchists in the club and they basically take over
1: <laughs> well so this is kind of william morris's fault if he was dabbling you know i bringing know in right? his anarchist he, buddies but they're not down
0: <laughs> he invited kropotkin over too many times they're like actually yeah <laughs> You still have a few people in the club that are like, oh, maybe we should try Parliament. And then most people are like, no. But then you also have a bunch of anarchists who eventually get majority control. They strip Morris of control of the newspaper and give it to uh, an anarchist instead. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Morris is like, man, I have been bankrolling everybody for a long time. I'm starting to feel the hit. (laughs) So he leaves. Um, in 1890, and he forms another group called the Hammersmith Socialist Society.
1: All right, now that you know, that sounds like a useful skill. You know, let's make a <laughs> bunch of hammers and go Mario on this thing. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll Hammer Brothers it up. Yeah. So at this point, he remains involved with the society. He works on their paper still. But I I think this is a fascinating turn for him because at this point in his life, he's getting a little older, he starts to try to mend some bridges. He reaches out to the SDF. He gives lectures for them. He supports their candidates for parliament. He helps write a manifesto for a joint committee of socialist bodies, which is basically an alliance between the SDF and the Fabian Society. Mm, Okay. And to me, this just kind of super crystallizes the fact that this man has been involved in and bankrolling a million of these orgs and i think he's just fucking tired of factionalism
1: (laughs) right he's like i paid for all of these (laughs) why are y'all arguing
0: exactly and um one of his last public lectures on this subject was at the anarchist stepniak's funeral Mm -hmm. where he calls for one socialist party he's like guys come on get it together
1: (laughs) yeah i mean there's not enough of us even all together. There's certainly not enough of us fractured, all, you know, split mm-hmm. all in the different ways. And this isn't some alien problem that they only dealt with back in the day, back in <laughs> England. Like, we still have this problem today, you know?
0: This is Twitter.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, now we have all these different factions, you know, USA Party for Socialist Labor, Communist Party USA. Like, there's all these different flavors or or, or factions mm-hmm. on the left and and that's not to mention even like straight up anarchist <laughs> organizations it's it, we, would, we it's would overwhelming yeah we would be better off if we could find ways to unite
0: <laughs> i think it's interesting too because this is the point where he starts embracing the term communism because he sees it as the end goal and this reminds me of our conversation last week where we're just like oh we have the same fucking goal why can't we just get it together
1: yeah Mm -hmm. it's but you know on the other hand it's easier said than done there's a reason why we still have this problem Mm -hmm. it's not just because people haven't realized it (laughs) they've realized oh shit we should just all unite and there we go
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sure we're not the first to fucking i mean literally we're not we're talking about this guy who said the same thing in the 1890s yep so you know he's starting to age he kind of returns to writing and translating he was even offered the position of poet laureate of Great Britain and Ireland, but he was like, hey, that's like a pretty monarchist in like mainstream position, so like I'm gonna say no.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> he actually begins to decline in the 1890s and he dies of tuberculosis on October 4th, 1896. Oh. All right. I wanted to get into some of his writings. Let's do it. Cool. The first one is called The Pilgrims of Hope which is a poem set in the Paris Commune.
1: Is he just praising, like, the Paris, the communards?
0: Yeah, he's just like, that was cool, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> We can all agree um, these guys were cool.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. The next one I thought was really cool is called A Dream of John Ball, which was set in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 in Kent. Do you know anything about this revolt?
1: Uh, I might. Let's see. Oh, yeah, I know about the end of this anyway. <laughs>
0: All right, so this was caused by it was it was after the Black Death, so tensions were high is a <laughs> polite way to put that, and you had very high taxes, and one day a royal official tries to collect some unpaid poll taxes in Brentwood and everyone was just like, "Fuck no." Violent revolt instead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and John Ball was one of the leaders of this revolt. He was this radical cleric who was advocating for social equality and you know, this, this was a big, like, abolition movement for serfs, basically. John Ball gets thrown in prison and excommunicated, I believe eventually executed, so yes. it doesn't go well for him. Yeah. <laughs> but the plot of this book, Dream of John Ball, is that a time traveler from the 19th century shows up and Ball's like, how's it going? Like, how's, how's socialism? Or And the time traveler guy's like, uh, sorry. <laughs> we don't have that yet. He instead tells him about like the current industrial revolution instead. And Ball's like, damn, that's not what we were supposed to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's he saw a brighter future and it's like, nope, we're in the dark (laughs) timeline.
0: Just kidding. (laughs) So, yeah, this is a theme he returns to.
1: (laughs) So what the theme, the theme being like a promise lost sort of thing.
0: Yeah, the specific theme of, like, time-traveling socialist comparisons of history. and okay. I, I think this is nice because it ties in his interest in medievalism, too.
1: hmm Okay.
0: Oh, I pulled this quote from one of his writings in The Commonweal. He says, Our business is the making of socialists, i.e. convincing people that socialism is good for them and is possible. When we have enough people of that way of thinking, they will find out what action is necessary for putting their principles in practice. Therefore, I say, make socialists. We socialists can do nothing else that is useful. Which I really like. He's like super emphasizing the education point. I I think he's acknowledging like, yeah, we don't know exactly how it's going to go, but like, let's just get everybody on board first.
1: This is kind of a difference um, or a, a different take than like what Marx would say about that.
0: He says let them do it and figure it out as they go
1: yeah like the working class will become conscious of itself through its experience right so through experience in working but also in combining in bigger and bigger unions because there are bigger and bigger factories and stuff and that's how they'll figure out because they know their material interests but that's how they'll be like demystified that's how they'll be like they'll realize oh what do we need to do Is in that, is in really doing it rather than, I guess, yeah, there's not really a point in trying to convert people per se, because, I mean, if they're in the wrong class, they're, why would they, you know, convert the bourgeois all you want to socialism? They're not just (laughs) going to be like, oh, cool. Yeah. You know, expropriate us. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you think? I mean, I'm not saying Marx has to be right about everything.
0: No, I I think I appreciate this viewpoint, I think especially for his time, too. Like, I think he recognized, like, hey, now might not be the time. Like, as much as I'm making jokes about, like, oh, we went back in time. And this guy was like, why haven't you done it already? (laughs) I think it's kind of fair for him to be like, no, we need to get more people on board first because we're not. And especially, I think, because of his, because this is for the Commonweal, which is for his, like, next to last newspaper. So Mm -hmm. he's probably like, yeah, we don't have it together yet.
1: So he's saying kind of more laying the groundwork. I think so. Okay.
0: I like it because it makes me feel less useless. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it does, also doesn't hurt. Um, I think we can see this in our world, too, that a lot of people whose class interests do align with the proletariat, you know, that's that's who they are, don't realize it. We don't see as much of those forces that Marx predicted of bringing bigger and bigger bodies of workers together we kind of see the opposite of workers being more and more atomized and and separated from each other whether that's through like the gig economy or just part-time labor in general like there's lots of ways that workers are kept more and more separate from each other rather than in more close contact you know
0: yeah and, and maybe this is a way to combat that
1: yeah no that's exactly where i was going with that is Is maybe we do need some more emphasis on educating, on pulling the wool from people's eyes that, hey, you're, you know, these job creators and stuff that you're cheering on and, and, you know, and this, these armies that you think should, you know, be number one, like, that's not where it's at, man. Actually, like, you should be against those. those are your enemies, you know,
0: basically building that solidarity through education,
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's a place for it. I, I, I think Morris was on to something. Marx was probably right, given what he was looking at, but things change.
0: <laughs> Next, he wrote something called News from Nowhere, which was kind of a sci-fi utopian novel, which uh, if you've listened to the show, you know we love
1: those. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> this was about a man named William Guest. He falls asleep and awakes in the early... 21st century whoops uh to find a socialist society
1: uh we took a wrong turn somewhere <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we fucked up yeah because uh, in this timeline you have no private property no big cities no authority no money no divorce no courts no prison no class
1: interesting that sounds very dispossessed
0: yep <laughs> it's an agrarian society and this is something that Morris emphasizes in lots of his writings, but they, they have a pleasure in both nature and work. Like this is very, I I feel like very Kropotkin to me is that work is creative and pleasurable. And there's very little division between art, life and work.
1: Yeah. That's Kropotkin. That's also classic Marx too. Marx was very much about Mm, like, you know, ending this division of labor and joy and to, to, to where, work would become the joy of life because it's kind of blended in what you're doing, you know? This
0: book is interesting because it kind of fuses his interest again between, you know, Marxism and also kind of like a romance, uh, like romanticism. There's a lot of symbolism and like archetypal characters in this work. Like you have a a wise old mentor figure that shows him around and like a pure woman who is like this unattainable love and stuff like that. Mm Mm-hmm. What was also interesting is this was actually written in response to another utopian novel called Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887.
1: So in this one, things were good in the year 2000?
0: (laughs) So, yeah, but it's different. So this is by Edward Bellamy, Mm -hmm. and this is basically a much more nationalist version of this book, much more just straight state socialism. Okay. So in this one, a guy falls asleep, wakes up in the year 2000 in Boston to find a socialist utopia. I don't know if you were in the Boston area in the year 2000, but I'm willing to bet this was not the case. Hey, I,
1: I didn't hear reports of you know, <laughs> a socialist utopia there. I was a little young, but I don't remember it.
0: <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> but uh, in, this, in this book, they have you know an industrial army and they're, they're doing near instant delivery of goods To provide reduced working hours, retirement of 45, they have a robust public kitchen service, uh, nationally owned production, and equal distribution of goods. So, a little more statist in flavor.
1: Sounds really good, though. I'm going to be honest. It does
0: sound really good. (laughs) I'm not, like, against it.
1: I dig it. I, I read a little bit of that back in the day sometime. Uh, oh really? Yeah, it's, it's weird. The whole instant delivery system and everything. Mm, it's yeah. like, it just kind of like comes in through pipes in your home, I believe. Something like that. <laughs> it's a little Brazil. Little tubes. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, you know, but <laughs> I imagined it a lot. Cle- I hadn't watched Brazil by that point, but I imagined a lot cleaner, you know.
0: Oh, that's so like pneumatic tubes or something. That's funny. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand this one like description of it that everyone had like a, like a credit card, but it wasn't like a traditional credit card. And also everyone gets the same amount of like credit on there. So I'm like, well, why have the currency? Like
1: <laughs> that's uh, I think that would be related to like a, an economic kind of management system. So it's like money in a way, but it's more like to, to keep track of how resources are allocated. Ooh. Cause if you have to run a centrally planned thing, you have to know, Who's, you know, what areas are consuming what? How much do you need of everything? So you have to have a way of keeping track of it, basically. Uh, The Soviet Union tried to do something similar. uh, You know, I mean, they essentially had money, but it was kind of used to figure out, okay, you know, what would the quote unquote markets be doing here? Like, how how much do we need to produce of all these things?
0: Okay, that makes more sense to me. Because I was just like, wait, this is just fake money then. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: And it comes across that way, too.
0: Okay couple of more points for this this novel if you work a dangerous job you work fewer hours and then crime is considered to be more of a medical problem mm-hmm. um, most of the poverty crimes went away if someone does a crime they're like all right like what's going on with you basically yeah <laughs> which I think is okay
1: yeah what sort of treatment can we provide in terms of therapy you know or whatever and I think that that's a big part of what leftists kind of believe about crime more broadly speaking is there are ways to kind of, you know, cure it. And as far as crimes that, you know, would persist after property crimes would be gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because those are like fairly rare, you know.
1: Right. And not all of it would be met, it would be necessarily a medical thing. I mean, people are going to get super upset at somebody and, and kill somebody. That will happen, but mm-hmm. pretty rarely, you know. But yeah, that's, in, that's, that's interesting. So that's all from looking backward. Yes. And so News From Nowhere was like his version of that. Uh, that was more anarchist, I guess.
0: Yeah, basically just a little more pastoral, a little more yeah, a little more Ancom.
1: Okay, which one? Which one would you rather live in?
0: Oh man, you know I love that Ancom flavor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty rad.
1: It's pretty good. Yeah, the other one sounds cool, but also kind of like a little urban.
0: <laughs> yeah, a little rules heavy.
1: Yeah, but you know it's it's transitional. Maybe, I think I think you know looking backward is stage one. Mm. News from nowhere is stage two.
0: I could go for that.
1: But the end comms will say, "Hey, no, no, let's skip to news from nowhere," and that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. <laughs> that's cool. I, you know, I'm not going to complain either way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One socialist party, guys, we can do it. Yeah. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to the Marxist.org archive. This guy wrote a lot, and my overall review—I didn't spend a ton of time in there because I think most of his writing mostly just echoes Marx, Engels, and Kropotkin. So, like, I agree with a lot of it. He talks about things like the exploitation and evolution of slaves versus serfs versus wage workers. He talks about alienation. He talks about how we make too much useless shit and, like, we could actually, you know, redistribute our productive power. He talks about finding pleasure in work. And, like, these are all things we've talked about before. So I was like, I don't know if I need to spend a ton of time, like, reading all these quotes. Yeah,
1: but it's cool that he was, you know,
0: he was on board. Yeah. I would say he does emphasize art more, which makes sense. That's his his thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. He has a talk called Art and Labor in it. He basically says, you know, art is more than just pictures or sculptures and architecture. It's basically anything beautiful that we have made. And, you know, the idea of like art of everyday things. This is an issue for everyone, not just artists. It shouldn't just be a luxury good. This is what separates us from like animals, you know, <laughs> is that we like nice things.
1: Yeah. And we've, we've talked about that before is it's kind of, you know, essential to the human condition. Even if you're like, yeah, but I can't draw. I draw stick figures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like people enjoy singing or listening to music, like experiencing art is also, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be, does it have to be creating art or can like experiencing art be, you know, this, this sort of quality we're talking about.
0: Not to get all art appreciation on you, you know, freshman college thoughts, but can you have art without experiencing art? What do you mean? Like art is made to be experienced. If you, oh, no one experiences okay. it, like fucking who cares? <laughs>
1: right. You, if you don't have a friend to show it to, then why did you do it?
0: Yeah. I mean, you could also say like, yeah, I made it for me to experience. Like that's a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But
0: like I a lot of art, I would say, is is dependent on people interacting with it.
1: All right. Getting those, those one-on-one questions in there. That's my role today.
0: <laughs> Philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, overall, dude, you know. He writes a lot of things that I agree with, but in kind of a repetitive and flowery fashion, you know, he's, he's a Victorian English guy. So <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to get through it. I pulled some quotes for the notes. If you are a patron on Patreon, you can look through those and I include some links. But if you really want to do a deep dive, I would go to the Marxist.org archive and search for William Morris. There's a ton of stuff, like literally every year. It's just like. Because they, they go by year and then by type. And so it'll be like 1880 speeches, books, whatever. Like, it's a topic. Ah,
1: okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he was
1: busy. So he's well documented. That's cool.
0: He is. He Sometimes
1: you'll go look for a socialist in there and you're just like, ah, oh, man, they have like five things.
0: <laughs> no, he has like a hundred things. Okay. Some of them are like strictly art talks, like about Decorative arts or something. But um, Mm -hmm. there's, especially, obviously, towards the later end, when he gets more into socialism, it's mostly socialism. Nice. I would say one quote I wanted to pull out was something from a lecture called How We Live and How We Might Live, which was given to the Hammersmith branch of the SDF at Mm -hmm. one of his many houses. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it kind of sums up his idea of his, his kind of rejection of industrial processes in spite of our inventions no worker works under the present system an hour the less on account of those labor-saving machines so-called but under a happier state of things they would be used simply for saving labor with the result of a vast amount of leisure gained for the community to be added to that gained by the avoidance of the waste of useless luxury it is not this or that tangible steel and brass machine which we want to get rid of but the great intangible machine of commercial tyranny which oppresses the lives of all of us hell yeah yeah and I, I think that totally sums up the arts and crafts movement some of those other movements like the luddites and the diggers it's like we're not just anti-progress or mm-hmm. anti-technology for the wrong uses kind of like diego rivera even
1: yeah and uh it's a lovely connection because diego rivera has like this mural of uh the man and the machine or something like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how people are just kind of getting slotted into the into the various positions right and like
0: yeah that's the detroit industry murals
1: yeah uh it's that's what this was making me think of is is that this idea that we are serving the machines instead of the machines serving us
0: yeah exactly
1: like we're getting put to the wheel and, and more is being wrung from us you know, same amount of time doing twice the work and getting nothing for it. And he says, how might we live? The only way we could live in that way that he's talking about, where we'd use this to actually save our time and actually give us like freedom to do what we want is if we're the ones in control of the machine.
0: Definitely. And, and if this is like maybe too macro of a view, like think about how when you are are at work and you finish a thing early, you do not get rewarded. You get to do more things.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. They don't say, oh, cool. Go home. We'll pay you the same amount. No worries. I mean, and that goes for like an office job. You know, people finish, usually finish their work and just have to look busy, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, a service worker job or, you know, like in a restaurant or whatever, they say, well, start cleaning up, you know, mm-hmm. look busy. <laughs> and it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, like we're not actually saving any time or labor in this system. Like it's just not possible because there's an ever demanding need for growth.
1: Yeah, and I guess I I kind of do see more the value of what he's talking about of we do need to make more socialists, even if that's among the ruling class. You know, I mean, he's a bourgeoisie, you know, but yes. we need to awaken more people to the reality of conditions like that don't directly experience it too. you know people who are like well this is kind of fine is that like those people have to be won over to fight on the side of the workers when the time comes because like a lot of this i don't know this may be dark but like a lot of the system is automated is technology is like i mean that we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna need Like to unite a large portion of humanity to do anything to free ourselves when, you know, in a a future, in a future showdown.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about it before is like we're hiding a lot of workforces through technology. So like it's a lot harder to connect with the working class. So I think I think you need edu- education on both sides of like for the working class, like I think it would be helpful if they because not everyone in the working class is on board necessarily. So I think it'd be helpful for them for them to be able to name like what's going on. Like, OK, here's you know, the actual enemy is this, you know, the machine of commercial tyranny.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that was a great way to put it.
0: Yeah. And then for the, you know, the bourgeois, it's like, OK, you may experience some of these things, too, but also like building that empathy, too
1: yeah yeah and for yourself man wouldn't it be nice not to have to answer emails all weekend and be (laughs) on call or whatever like because those guys i mean we're if we're not talking the captains of industry if we're just talking like the upper middle managers or whatever you know they get dragged around too you know for
0: sure for sure, the labor
1: aristocracy but they're you know
0: and a lot of it is useless work a lot of work especially in the corporate world is proving that you're doing work with metrics and all kinds of bullshit yeah and it's it's nothing that makes people happy and if anything we can always be like well do you want your kids to have a planet or what
1: (laughs) right true yeah but you're right a lot of that a lot of those jobs like we would collectively be better off if they did not exist
0: (laughs) Yep. yep yep all right so that is all i have i'm william morris i i just really like his journey i think i think it's kind of an interesting symbol for how you can you can go from bourgeois to lib to radical and how it may be possible to do that so
1: yeah and it is i mean like he showed that it is and a lot of people come from those privileged backgrounds and you know when we have to be kind of expansive with that because we're in one of the imperialist countries Mm -hmm. that covers a lot of us in terms of the global scale you know we might not really have relative privilege compared to you know people in the united states but i mean globally like we really do oh, yeah you oh, know yeah. and so if we take that step back and look at it in a global level like if we're going to be involved in the project of communism or anarchism like we're like we said we're on the same road whatever <laughs> we are kind of actively working against our side right
0: yeah yeah and i, I think it's important to to build that education from both sides. Like we said, any final thoughts on this guy?
1: Like you just said, I I love his, his journey. He kind of, and I I love his final act of like, Hey, reaching out to his old, his old nemesis and kind of being like, come on, let's patch bridges. I think that's a cool final, final chapter.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think it really exemplifies like, dude, I've been a part of so much shit. I'm over it. I'm about to die. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if he said that necessarily, but he was like, man, like I've seen some shit. Let's get on the same page.
1: Right. I also thought it was a, you know, a, a cool subject. I'm glad you got to read all about this guy. Cause he's such a blend of like things you're interested in.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is. And I, I think it's interesting too, because he was so interested in all these disparate, not really disparate, but all of these like intertwining art movements, like romanticism and medievalism. And they ended up, kind of all having roles to play in his interests, like everything from Anglicanism and Christian socialism to romanticism and like writing novels. Like I I thought that was kind of cool that like he was able to funnel his interests into his activism.
1: Yeah. And that's another interesting point to raise is it's not like he was into art and also into socialism. Cause I think like aspects of the left or aspects of, um, communists and socialists get very heavy into like economics right and saying you got to have this cold analysis of the of the material reality and that's you know what must motivate you which it doesn't motivate a lot of people because it's boring Uh,
0: (laughs) it gives me agonies of confusion in the head
1: (laughs) right yeah and so for a lot of people like it's simpler it's more accessible to say like we we need to be able to enjoy our lives and that's why we need to throw off the shackles of capitalism right we need to be able to be human and i think that for morris that's how he comes at this is like i want you know i want more people to have like the chance to experience and create art
0: there's a great quote that kind of represents that he says apart from the desire to produce beautiful things the leading passion in my life has been and is hatred of modern civilization (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is from his essay how i became a socialist
1: <laughs> nice
0: which like oh god that's a mood i like to make pictures and be angry <laughs> we've all yeah
1: we're all there at some point in our lives of just looking around like why is shit this way oh you know
0: <laughs> yeah but like even i think his environmentalist stripe kind of gets to that too Of he, he uses what he is interested in to push for a better living condition
1: yeah thank you for all the hard work that went into researching that and for of course for educating me today
0: no problem i was i was that middle angel i was educating <laughs> <laughs> that's me <laughs> all right so next week we're actually going to be taking the week off sorry y'all my fault i'm going to new york to see my bestie i don't want to have to pack a mic and edit an episode on my vacation so <laughs> sorry
1: yeah, no, that's that's fair. We all need time off. Um, so when you're sitting around angry that you can't listen to our podcast because we've taken the time off, you should use that time to find ways to agitate for other people to get more time off. Mm, I like that. Or for that. yourself to get more time off, too. Not yeah,
0: I'm going to go to, like, look at nature or whatever. I'm going to pull a William Morris.
1: <laughs> Maybe you'll build a fancy house.
0: Maybe I will. Maybe I'll build some stained glass. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but when we return, we will be getting into a little book.
1: Yeah, we're going to be getting into a book that's often used in quite scurrilous ways. <laughs> it's taught in a lot of... Did you read this in high school? or? I did. I or? did. Okay.
0: I think it was actually middle school, like eighth grade.
1: It's taught in a lot of english classes i guess it's animal farm by george orwell
0: like i said i read this in middle school so i'm super curious how my takes have changed i hope they have god i was an idiot then (laughs) Um, yeah i i was so dumb i got a perm so like yeah we hopefully i have evolved
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we'll take a look at that i'll have i'll bring a little bit to the table about george orwell and his Mm. his history
0: All I know is that like one Harker Vagrant comic that has him in it. And I don't even super remember that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll talk about it and, uh, and yeah, get into it. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff in there. It's a pretty short read though. So if you do want to knock it out, you'll be able to, you can find this online for free. If you go to the animal farm, Wikipedia page and Mm -hmm. scroll to the bottom, there's uh, animal farm at faded page and animal farm at project Gutenberg, Australia, Perfect. And you can find like free PDFs or HTML, however you want to read it. You can find it there.
0: I will be downloading it for my plane ride. <laughs> All right. Great. And everyone has to read. You have two weeks to read this very short book. So no excuses class.
1: <laughs> yeah. No excuses. You can do it. Take notes. Unless you don't want questions. to. We'll just,
0: we'll just tell you. <laughs> we'll give me the summary. It's actually fine if you don't want to.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's also fine. This whatever. This is
0: a self-directed education. Okay
1: true no grades you know no we're doing grades. it a uh, new school style or whatever
0: we literally can't give you grades so yes. no grades
1: <laughs> well i'll see you in a while then
0: yeah two weeks see you later
1: all right bye
0: bye hey there comrades just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media we are on twitter at teach communism instagram at teach me communism you can shoot us an email that's teach at gmail.com any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration if you want to admire us in a public manner and you should you can go to apple Podcasts to give us a review it is the best way to help people find the show love when people write and review us please do both we are also on youtube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts send them to our page And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at TeePublic. You can find shirts and, I believe, also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye y'all.